On this week in sales, we're going to be looking at why you're more likely to have a CEO jump in on your sales calls because of the pandemic. We're going to be looking at why sellers perhaps don't influence their buyers as much as what they think they do. And we're going to be discussing a new study that shows that almost half of CRM data is complete rubbish and much, much more. Hi, everyone. My name is Will Barron, and I'm one half of this week in sales. The other half, the legend that is Victor Antonio, joins me by the power of the internet. Victor, how is it going, sir? Will, it is going good. Right back at you. How's it going over there with the lockdown? Point two. <laughs> so this is only a kind of uh, semi-lockdown. It's more like um, it's more retail stores that are shut as opposed to, for example, I've just ordered a load of stuff off Amazon, and that's just all arrived. So yeah, it's it doesn't really affect me because I don't really go shopping uh, all that often. So, but it's disappointing, mm -hmm. and it's you know I'm sure it's frustrating for uh, pub owners and 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 restaurant owners and, and places like that that are truly affected. So. So, yeah, it's back and forth, I guess. Yeah, that is bad news. All right, shall we do this? Let's jump into this week in Let's sales. Let's jump into a, I, th I think this is, uh, well, I'm going to put a positive spin onto it anyway. I think this is good news. A uh, article here from the Brooks Group, or it's a it's a resource. We'll link to it in the show notes. Thirty three percent of sales leaders say that they've clawed their sales results back to a significant recovery. So the the Brooks Group have asked sales leaders on the lingering effects of twenty twenty and how it's shaping up to the the current and future planning activities. And again, thirty three percent of sales leaders say that they've got themselves back to I guess a place where it's acceptable, where where things aren't completely mm -hmm. falling apart. So. If you had to predict that, Victor, would the would thirty three percent of businesses getting back to somewhat normal be what you'd expect, or is that good news, or is that bad news? I think that's what I would expect. Do you know what I mean? If it was fifty percent, I'd be like, hmm, that's interesting. But thirty three, a third, that sounds right because a lot of people are trying to figure this out. Will, and sometimes you know, the bigger the company, you know, as I know, uh, as I do that, shifting a big company in a new direction is not that easy. So it would be interesting, and I know we don't have the data, but it would be interesting to see how big those companies are that are able to turn around those 33%. I think that would be interesting to I think. I think it's a wide, from what I read of the of the uh, of the post, it was quite a wide, broad range of a medium to large size organization. So again, it's a small sample size in the, I don't know, is there millions of companies on the planet? At least hundreds of thousands, right? Um, it's a small snap size. But it's... That, a, it's, but it's, it's it's a good conversation to have, though, like, you know, something to study in the future looking back. So what companies and what sizes were able to pivot quickly versus the big ones who weren't able to do that? And if there are big ones that did it, those are great case studies. For sure. There's, I, I'm, it's on the tip of my tongue, but I can't think. Of, I read a book not too long ago, and it studied, um, you know, quote, unquote, the best companies, both large and small, who have been through multiple recessions or, uh, you know, issues and crises, both internally and externally. And basically, the the conclusion of the book, um, how well researched it is, and you know, you can, you can pile on top of it if you like. The conclusion was that a lot of it's just luck. It's just down to um, uh, market forces, whether they affect you, and then how fast you can recover. And a lot of it was these, especially large enterprise organisations. It was literally just luck that they had the right people at the right time to recover from things. So I don't know if that gives anyone any hope, but <laughs> it should give a percentage <laughs> of people hope. What? What what does that say, Will? Uh, man plans, God mm -hmm. laughs. I've always loved that phrase because you can plan all you want, but the, the market forces are what they are, unpredictable. Sure. And let me ask you this. This is something I've been pondering on recently. There's been a number of books. I've done a number of podcasts recently on this topic of, of uncertainty. And I feel like if you can, I don't feel like, I know there's good data on that. If you can cope with uncertainty, you're more likely to have uh, larger levels of success in life. Do you feel like this uh, applic is applicable to sales and, and a sales role, Victor, that if you can just outlast uncertainty in a marketplace, a career or a position, that you've got a, you've got a better chance of, of, of success? I guess what I'm saying is if you can succeed by almost putting your head in the sand and just carrying on, carrying on, is that mm -hmm. a, a success trait? Yeah, I think it is. You know, you know, too often people throw, you know, banter around the word. You got to be adaptable, right? And but but I think if we look at uncertainty, our our goal is to what minimize uncertainty and increase certainty, so so to speak, depending on which way you want to look at it, right? And I've always believed that we live under the illusion of control and certainty. And so as soon as you accept that as part of your philosophy, then you say, all right, so what do I need to do? And I think resilience and consistency 
if I were to define adaptability, those would be the two variables I would look for. Like, how do you become more resilient so when something does happen, you change? And then if you're going to go on a new path, how can we do that consistently? Because I think at the end, that's what really makes a company successful. Sure. I, I, don't, I, I almost went into podcast mode then, Victor, of, of getting you to distill this and, and share it with us. Maybe that's a, an episode for a podcast on, on man your shows in the future. But let's, Could be another let's, podcast. let's keep on to the news, right? Good. So what's next up in, in the doc here? Well, wait a minute. You had this white paper here that says sharpening your competitive edge is the key to sales success in the fourth quarter and beyond. Is that, an, an, is that the title so of the paper? that's the title of the paper. Um, it's thebrooksgroup.com. We'll link to it in the show notes. That's where this uh, those data and insights came from. I didn't think the title was... Uh, it's useful to find the paper, but I think the data was a, a better headline than the, the title of the paper itself. Yeah. And, and I agree with you. This is really good news. I think if a third of the companies are making that change and re getting back to where they should have been, I think that's good news for everybody. So next I have, how about this one for a title? Sellers have little opportunity to influence customer decisions. Look at that. See, you gave the good news. <laughs> I'm about to drop some bad news right now. So so uh, we have the link for the, uh, the paper. Uh, Gardner Research finds that when B2B buyers are considering a purchase, they spend 17% of that time meeting with potential suppliers. Now, we've touched kind of on this on the past, but here's the part that I wanted to put an uh, emphasis on. When buyers are comparing multiple suppliers, the amount of time, Will, spent with any one sales rep may be only 5 or 6%. I mean, that's, that's brutal. That is brutal. What are your thoughts so on that? I, I want to play devil's advocate here just slightly, not to necessarily mm -hmm. to you, but I, I guess you can play the other side if you like, Victor. Sure. So that 5% mm -hmm. number only matters if it was 85% 10 years ago. If it was 6% of the time was spent with uh, salespeople 10 years ago, then the 5% is less of a, a dramatic number, right? And then the, the back of that is if we're assuming, or, and I think this article alludes to it as well, that People are spending, buyers are spending less time with salespeople because they're spending more time researching and doing their own planning and, uh, and kind of internet research themselves. Well, what's to say that the over 80, 95% of that time is not spent on, on my site and I'm a salesperson who is putting content out and the buyer's consuming my content, in which case that's an incredible number and I've got an amazing influence over them. So... That's a great point. So, <laughs> I love yeah, it. Maybe that's me being positive the, on things. And, and I, I, clearly, we both think this is the way that B2B sales is going with, with you know, content, mm -hmm. with buyers doing their own research up front. But if it's your research that they're going, if they're doing research with your content, I think this is an incredible you know, opportunity for salespeople as opposed to something that can hold them back. Yeah, and we're going to talk about that a little bit uh, later on. But you're, you're emphasizing something that if you're dominating, can I use the word? I love that word, <laughs> dominating. If you're dominating the customer journey, then this is good news, right? But if somebody else is, that's not good. By the way, the title of uh, the uh, paper, we have the link uh, below. Uh, it's New B2B Buying Journey and Its Implication for Sales. That is the actual, uh, again, great data again. And I just... I just think it's an interesting number, but I love your spin on it, though. That's a good spin. I yeah, love your spin. Whether this is good for competitiveness in a marketplace, who knows? Because probably larger companies, uh, more established companies, have more funding, more opportunities to build all this content and, and unique uh, buyer pathways. And that might be a, a roadblock for smaller companies to come and compete with them because there's going to be so much, like with your show and my show and the content that we put out and both the, the sales training that we both do online with our different platforms, for someone just to upstart and, and come and try and compete with us both now, there's so much content that needs to be done. There's so much work, not within the, the kind of training portal, there's so much that needs to be done. It's going to be increasingly difficult unless you've got a ton of funding behind you or you've got years of, of cash in the bank to just get your head down and, and rattle through and, and create content, which is what I did originally, right? So I, I, again, mm -hmm. I don't know if this is good for market competitiveness, but I know if I'm after something, I'm going to Google and Google typically shows you the uh, biggest websites with the most content, with the most social proof, because they want to show you what they call authority, right? And so unless you can compete in the Google mm -hmm. authority space, this is probably bad news for you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking maybe we need to like in, in, a, in a future episode of This Week in Sales, uh, by the way, go to thisweekinsales.com. Uh, if you want to send us some new information or you got a new press release, some new technology you want us to kind of peek at, eh, that's where you go, thisweekinsales.com. But 
I, I wanted to emphasize that maybe one of the future This Week in Sales episodes, we should really put an emphasis on how is marketing, especially in the content marketing side, being transformed within large companies? That's kind of what you're saying, man. You know, it's like, you know, with all this noise out there called a lot of content, what are companies doing to become relevant? Are they paying through the nose? Mm-hmm. Are they investing? I, I'd like to know that. I, I don't know. Do you have any perspective on that? I think I think all I can say is the days where you could just throw out some cheap uh, you know, banner ads, online ads, gather attention and be part of the buyer's journey through just paid. Um, I think that's going to be very difficult. You need at least some kind of paid content that drives to uh, somewhat organic content. You need to be capturing email addresses, which is becoming more and more increasingly difficult. And yeah, it's just because this is this is a battle that I'm facing. I'm sure you're facing as well to drive traffic, get attention for you know our products and services. And yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I need to ponder on it, Victor, because it's it is a, something that you know I'm yeah, concerned yeah. about as well. well. Well, here's something I could, I could say it's empirical. I've looked at my numbers on YouTube, and my subscribe rate was much higher than it was before, right? And so, in, but in the last two, three years, I've seen that number go down, and so it's harder to get subscribers and eyeballs and views because there's so much yeah. content out there. So. That's why we got to be a little more creative. Sure, right, sure. And, and look, this, this, this Week in Sales, this kind of content achieves that, right? Because I, I don't mm-hmm. want to get into a marketing rant for you know, a sales audience here, but some of it will be relevant. Uh, okay, of, yeah. You know, we're combining our audiences. This show goes out on your channel. It goes out on my channel. These collaborations, maybe for individual salespeople, they should be thinking about if they're wanting to create content, if they want to get in front of the buyer throughout the buying journey, maybe they should be thinking about the sales career as a collaborator with the organization that they work for, where they own their own content, they own their own buying experience, but they collaborate with the, their employer. Because that gives you value then to move from one sales job to another, as long as you're within the same industry. Uh, especially if your buyers perhaps are, we're going to talk about millennial buyers shortly. If they're millennial buyers now, they're going to be in more senior positions later on in time. You can upscale your career and, and, and follow them along the way. I know with me working in medical devices, I spent a lot of time with the registrars who were just about to become consultants. And then, of course, when they're all consultants, all the other sales reps ignored them. And so they want to buy from me. So there's mm-hmm. there's... You know, there's a, there's potential to be strategic about all of this as well. Yeah, I, you know, you you're triggered me today. <laughs> you're triggered me with ideas. This is not on the schedule what we're going to talk about, but I want to ask your opinion. Uh, you know, Ring DNA partnered with Andy right. Paul, right? Andy Paul, great speaker with a podcast. And so, what's your take on? That approach, that's almost like reaching out to the market, grabbing a, a content generator like Andy Paul, a domain expert in his field, and then Ring DNA sponsoring that podcast. And so that's collaboration. I'm going back to your word, collaboration. I think this is, it is important from a sales slash marketing standpoint. What are your thoughts on so, that? Uh, so I can't comment. I like Andy. He's been on my show a bunch of times. I can't comment specifically oh, no, no, on by the way, I'm, By the way, I am, I, I am an Andy yeah, yeah, fan. No, I agree. So that's, that's, that's a given. That's a given. I'm an Andy <laughs> fan. Uh, I'm, I, I'm wondering what the, let me rephrase no, no, the, that. The question was fine, what Victor. Is Ring the, DNA? the question was absolutely okay. fine. I just don't, I'm, I just don't want anything I'm going to say to be reflectful because I don't know the deal Andy has. I don't know whether he was hired as an employee and he was like, hey, employ me and the podcast comes with me and there's an asset there. I don't know whether he got a payout for his podcast and he's like, hey, you, you know, we, we want to sponsor your show for the next 10 years. We'll just give you a, a cash amount and come and work with us and you know, pr- promote from, from the, the inside out. So I, I, all I'm saying is I don't, I don't know his deal. So with, with- Okay, can I, ask, can I ask the question okay. a different way just to make sure yeah. I'm clear? So what do you think of a company who's in the sales field, reaching out into the market and grabbing a sales expert who's creating content and saying, let's partner and, you know, see if we can capture some eyeballs. So all companies should be doing that immediately five years ago. It, you know, it's called influencer marketing, right? It's <laughs> it's not it's not a new thing. Yeah. I think what could be new, though, is organizations promoting individuals from, from within who have domain expertise and making them the star adding a, a bunch of shine to them. And let me give you, and I don't might be UFC, so mixed martial arts. Each of the people mm-hmm. in the UFC, each of the fighters are independent contractors, allegedly independent contractors. I mean, there's, there's actually a big court case going on at the moment whether that's actually true or not. Mm-hmm. But they all have their own brand and they, you know, they choose to contract and work and fight within the UFC. The UFC has 
value from promoting these individuals because the bigger the fighter gets, you know, the likes of Conor McGregor, every time he fights, he's under contract within the UFC, every time he fights, to get, you know, tens of millions more dollars than if just Joe Schmo fights. So there's, um, I, I, I'm not going to use the word, I'm going to use the corporate uh, nonsense word here, Victor, the synergy between the UFC promoting Conor and Conor promoting himself. And so the value multiplies as they work together. So I think, you know, if you had a company uh, working, uh, selling to, if you had a, a product that is aligned to, for example, uh, SDRs, it would be a great move to hire a bunch of SDRs to have a sales team in your organization and then make each one of them their own superstar. And maybe you've got contracted in somewhere that the, all the content that they create within your employment goes onto your platforms or you get first dibs at it. But I'd want to encourage them to create content. And, and again, perhaps they move on to other companies. Perhaps they become full-on influencers and, and start monetizing their content in their own right. But for an organization standpoint, I mean, that'd be a really smart decision because you're then getting the authority from the brand of the organization. But then you're getting the authority from the individuals, which I don't want to ask um, Microsoft. I don't want to ask you know a, a logo like that a question. I want to ask Jerry, who's an expert of XYZ at Microsoft, a question. And so if I can break through to mm -hmm. that individual, he's then part of my buying journey. Um, yeah. That's uh, there it is. That that's what I wanted you to get to, because I think Ring DNA first of all is being brilliant with this move, and then hiring Andy Paul, add another brilliant exclamation point there. But to your point earlier, is that uh, the five six percent attention span? But yet, if during the buyer journey, I can dominate that journey. Again, Ring DNA is thinking this way, which is why I think it's brilliant from a sales slash marketing standpoint. That's the only emphasis I wanted to put on. I think it's brilliant. <laughs> you should just said that, Victor, rather than me going uh, around the uh, the hills. Well, You're no, coaching me to that answer, then. No, but but but. Uh, no, no, no. But the thing is, even your UFC explanation is is so well placed because you're you're what you're doing is you're highlighting something that that, that is a, you're you're breaking an old paradigm. You know, the UFC is doing it. You're just reminding us, the audience, that hey, it's shifted. It's no longer about you belong to me. I'll control who you can market, who you can't. But now you have two independent entities working together for a common, I guess, revenue objective. And I think that's brilliant. I think, let me just end it with this point here for the audience specifically. Content has value and that value scales very slowly and it's very difficult to get to episode 600, 500 of something. So if you as an individual contributor, as a sales professional, create one blog article, nobody really cares. But by the time you've created the 450 and you've got a nice little bit of traffic coming to your blog or it's a YouTube channel, whatever it is, then you as an individual, even though it's it's cost you thousands and thousands of dollars through your time and you know opportunity cost to create that content, at a certain point, there's a tipping point where that then has value. That will get you jobs. It will, you know, it makes you less likely to be sacked because they want to keep that trickle of, of traffic and attention coming. Brands want to be associated with individuals. Like I've done work with Salesforce, HubSpot, HubSpot are a, a partner of the Salesman podcast at the moment for like, like five, six months or so. And they want to have me not necessarily talking their behalf. I'm sure there'll be countless legal issues of, of things that I say and, and, and you know, the, the way I, I, I act and stuff. But they want to be associated with that brand because it's, grassroots isn't the right word, but it's it's a brand for salespeople by, you know, an ex-salesperson. By the way, it's I would use the word, it's, or, it's an organic yeah, audience It's real, right? Have. It's auth authentic is the word yeah. I'm looking for. If you can create something that's authentic, Better that word. has real value because... A real big brand, HubSpot, Salesforce, whoever it is, Microsoft, it's difficult for them to do authentic because it goes through so many steps of, of legal look at it, their marketing, and then they come back and then they've got to debate it. It's not just one person's voice anymore. And as humans, this is why sales is important. This is why it'll never be completely replaced by marketing. We want to deal with a person, a, a real individual. And I'm going to touch on this later mm -hmm. on as we talk about Chorus.ai, but yeah. Sorry, we've got totally off track here, Victor, but hopefully that's no, valuable. No, 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 but I, 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 no, I think it's very valuable because I think this is a, if we're trying to find, if a company's listening to this, a big company is trying to find a way to differentiate themselves in the market to get attention, this is a rather new strategy. But here's the important part. You, you already said it, you articulated it perfectly, that if you have one or two blogs or videos, nobody really cares. But if you're a content provider, you're at four or 500, that's real value. And that's also a high barrier to entry that not a lot of people can jump over.
So companies would be smart, just like Ring DNA did, to partner with real content providers. Love it. Okay, next up, we're going to shift slightly here. Product-based sales training, that marketplace, is a technology company is enabling product-based sales training, is going to grow to $4.2 billion by 2024. So this is a growing marketplace where other sales enablement and other marketplaces are starting to slow down slightly because of the pandemic. So they might speed back up again after the fact. But yeah, I wanted to just ask you, uh, pitch you on this, Victor, because is product training, is that where people are going, is that where salespeople are going wrong? Is that where the gap is? Or is the gap really in sales training? I've always believed, I came from the technology side just like you, that it's in the product-based training. That that's where it's almost like uh, if I were to put the 80-20 rule, I would say 80% on the product understanding how it apply, you can use it and how it applies to the customer, and then maybe sprinkle in some sales strategy here and there to kind of position the product. So I love this. And it's also very specific. A lot of sales training is very general. This is very specific. And I guess it's as useful as, because these are the market that's growing here is platforms where organizations can put their own product training in because clearly competitor A isn't going to publicly share their training for competitor B. So it's all got to be created internally. So a lot of it depends on whether you have individuals within the organization who are versed in things like you know, learning design or you know the ability to teach as well. But yeah, the, the product stuff, I've, I've had good product training, I've had bad product training. And the good product training then allows me to communicate just more effectively with the buyer, which then if you can effectively communicate, which I'm not doing very well with this anecdote, you don't need a lot of the sales hacks, tips, tricks, because people want to listen to you. Right. Yeah, I'm trying, as you're, as you're talking, I go, I'm going back to my my product management and sales days, right? And so let's be careful, because we're, we're going to get a lot of criticism okay. on this one. I know we are. So let's be clear. Let's, let's let me walk it through slowly. Product managers or the engineers associated with the product will train you on the product. The downside is they don't train you on positioning the value of the product. So if that component is missing, then this is going to become a very interesting me too conversation because a competitor is going to say, yeah, we have that also. We have that also. So if they don't know how to articulate the value, first of all, define the value, articulate it, and then position the value, those three things, then that's going to be missing from this. So we need to put that in there as part of the product training. Sure. And and there's my 80 there's my 80-20 blend, yeah, I guess. Exactly. So it's not just learning and memorizing features of benefits of a, a camera system, whatever it is you're selling, right? It's it's why that is useful to the to the audience, to the to the buyer. Talk to me about this micro learning. I'm I'm curious. So uh, the growing emphasis on micro learning. That kind of makes sense, doesn't it? So, well? so micro learning, um salesman org does this, but I don't I, I, I I don't want to talk about, I don't want to pitch the product, but I'll use it as a, an analogy to, to explain it. So micro-learning can be anything from you take a one-hour really crappy video and you turn it into 61-minute really crappy videos. I don't think there's much value in that, right? <laughs> um, and and there's, there's good data on this as well that shows that some people do prefer yeah. 60 crappy videos rather than one hour of a crappy video because um, no. people's concentration spans at a beginning, a middle, and end is useful, but that just means that the original training was bad. Micro-learning can be used in multiple different ways. And one of the things that we do is that we have all of your, your training. You go through each of the workshops and you have one practice platform. We call it uh, the um, sales coach. And it gives you, if you're, le if you're learning like cold calling or whatever it is on the platform, it'll give you scenario-based um, practicing. So it'll ask you, once you've been through the training, it'll ask you, the person gives you this objection. Should you say this or should you say that? This is a really simple example. But where this gets interesting, which you, because you could do this with a flashcard, right? A, um, a, a card that has the question on one side and, and the answer on the other. But where micro-learning gets then slightly more sophisticated and more interesting to me anyway, to, to geek out on, on the back end of some of this, we use what's called space repetition learning. So when you get the question right, then we show it you in two weeks. If you get it right again, we show it you in six months. But something that you get wrong, we'll show you again and again and again. And it works with, mm -hmm. um, oh, I can't remember the, there was one company who did a ton of research, basically led the field in space repetition learning. It's the, the, I'll put them in the show notes. It's forgetting, forget me now, but they've, they've got an algorithm yeah. basically that's free, open source. They, they claim it's been improved upon because they've got a paid product as well. Um, but yeah. the, the research on this is really fascinating. And I know from doing my own learning, uh, whenever I want to learn a subject, the last company I worked at with medical devices, 
we built this whole system out for them. Um, and I assume they're still using it now because it was just so effective at just cramming knowledge in very quickly and, and ramping up those uh, ramp on times of, of new hires. And by the way, even that's important, right? The ramp up time. I didn't want to forget there's a book by the Heath brothers, Chip yep. and Dan Heath called Made to Stick, which talks about spacing and repetition and how you basically hold things in your brain. So that'd be a great book to kind of put in the show notes also. Cool. I'll stick that one in. Okay, so next up, a study. Half of all businesses believe that the quality of their CRM data is somewhere between, quote, very poor and, quote, neutral. <laughs> so I'll, I'll share the stats in a second here, but just from the headline, Victor, is this surprising to you? <laughs> no, it's not. It's not surprising at all. I mean, we, we've talked about this in past episodes, you know, the, the salesperson's reluctance to input data for various reasons. Don't have the time. Uh, if I do put it in, it's usually not enough for my manager, so forth and so okay, on. Okay, so more data on this. Over a third of participants in the study claim to have no CRM data management process or one that is just completely, quote, ineffective. So again, <clears throat> that actually surprised me that I thought more businesses would have had some kind of management system for contacts, seemingly not. But so so by the way so just to, uh, so over a third of other over a third of participants claim to have no CRM data management we're talking about the process of putting data in is that what they're referring Correct. to Correct but if you can't if you've got no process to get the data in or one that's ineffective and 50% of the data in your CRM is is pointless then does it really exist a CRM surely Here's a question. Does a CRM work with 50% effective data or does that then affect all of the data? Is If 50% of a, an experiment is just nonsense, then the outcome is not going to be uh, valid, is it, surely? Yeah, I guess I'm trying to think about what's wrong. I mean, what process do you need to enter data? I mean, I, I would figure that you just go in there and fill in some fields. I mean, I'm just trying to figure out, okay, what's your problem? Why do you need a process? Like, okay, one, you're going to get home. Then two, or after a meeting, you're going to, you know, do X, Y. Is that what they're talking about? But you're right. I mean, and the other question to ask is, when we're looking at the data across the CRM, I get that, but I would look at it for individual performance and see how they're entering their data. But anyway, I'm off well, topic Well, let's on pull that. it back to performance. So the, the study also says 27% also report that bad data costs them 10% or more in lost revenue annually. So this is this is what I want to get to. This is the crux of this, uh, the, the, the data in this study, Victor. If 20% of individuals are reporting that bad data costs them 10% or more in lost revenue, why are they just solving the problem? Imagine going to an organization and saying, hey, we're going to give you 10% more revenue next year. You don't really need to do much other than change your process. For the sales team, you know, we're not on about manufacturing. We're not cutting costs elsewhere. We're not sacking a load of people. You'd think that corporations, organizations would jump at this. I, I would think. So 27%. Let's just call that sure. a third. Can we just say a third? Uh, also reported bad data cost them 10%. So a third of the people believe that. Why aren't we incentivizing salespeople somehow to put in good data or make sure, ensure good? By incentivizing, remind us, look, the fact that you're not putting in your, you know, the right data, you're losing 10% of your revenue potential, which means, which ties into yep. commission. So maybe that's a sales pitch to a sales. Just give everyone a 10% bonus because the commissions of the team is going to be far less than the overall revenue of the organization. Most people would, for a 10% commission, I'm sure, would take a little bit more effort with the CRM data. That's a really interesting data point, though, that they're losing 10%, they believe, or more in lost revenue because of bad data entry. Interesting. I guess some of the answer here is to use AI, hopefully, in the future to, to compensate for some of this. Um, but yeah, we'll come on to that in a second when we talk about Chorus as well. Yep. So what have we got next up, Victor? All right. MailChimp sends billions of emails. I wanted to talk about email. You know, the forgotten strategy, I'll call it. And for some reason, I saw this article, and, I, and it got me to thinking about emails again. And I go, where does it fit now? You know, because now we got video prospecting, the new thing, the new fad, video prospecting. And so this article, MailChimp, let me make sure I got it. Uh, it says it was sending out millions of data. Hold on a second. I got it right here, and I just want to make sure. So the research says email marketing benchmarks and statistics by industry. This is the, the MailChimp article. And I just thought it was interesting that it says, needless to say, we track a lot of data. <laughs> I like the way they're so <laughs> self-assured. Needless to say, we track a lot of data. So we've scanned 
billions of emails delivered delivered by our systems, which, you know, by the way, wouldn't this company be right for an acquisition for a good AI company, uh, where campaign tracking was activated and where users reported their it, uh, their industry and then calculate the average unique open rates, click rates, soft bounces, and hard bounces by industry. If you're listening to this or watching this, you want to go look at this link because it gives you some interesting data by industry on what the open rates are, the click rates, and the bounce rates. So take a look at that. And I think you asked the question, can we compare email marketing data to sales automation data. What did you mean by that question? Well, I saw it in the notes. Uh, I'll come back to that just for context. MailChimp does 700 million a year in revenue. So I don't know who's going to be acquiring them other than the the, the serious big dogs, right? But what I wanted okay. to ask was, um, if we're looking here at open rates of, of marketing messages of uh, MailChimp, we use MailChimp within sales.org as well, as well as, uh, what's the other company? Active Campaign. So for example, the, some of the data would, from our perspective, would look great. When you sign up to the product, you get an email. It gets like 99.9% mm -hmm. open rate. But then we've got an email list of mm -hmm. 110,000 salespeople, and that gets uh, you know between 30 and 40% open rate. So the the numbers, I think, is super dramatic. And depending on the organization, it's, it's really difficult to compare them. So what I was asking, what I wanted to ask you here, Victor, was, is the value in comparing the marketing numbers versus the sales numbers from the perspective of, What's a what's a cold email reply rate? Kind of one to three percent. I think it's probably very similar to marketing mm -hmm. these days, where where it used to be right. probably much much higher because it was you know less automated and, and more direct. Yeah, that's a tough question to answer, which is why I found the next article. This is one by Campaign Monitor because it actually looked at uh, across industries, and title being email benchmarks for all industry. And in here says the average email benchmarks for all industries, if you want to compare yourself, here they are, the average open rate, again, all industries, is average open rate 17.8%, average click-through rate is 2.6%. That sounds about right to me. Uh, and then unsubscribe rate, 0.1%, average bounce rate, 0.7%. And on here they have, again, a beautiful diagram, uh, graphic on different industries so you can look yours up. So for example, uh, I'll just pick one randomly here. Open rates for education is 23%. Click-through rate is 3%. Uh, government, 30%, 30.5% open rate with a 4.1 click-through rate. I would think if the government was sending me emails, I'd be open more than every other, every one in three. I, th I thought yeah. it would go. I thought it would be higher also, but apparently there's a lot. And then, by the way, professional services. Let's put us, ourselves oh. under that. Uh, open rate is 18 percent. So if you're getting 23, will you're doing exceptionally well? And the click-through rate is 1.8 percent. Click-through rates. Your thoughts on uh, the numbers? The click-through rate is difficult because sometimes I send an email with nothing to click in, just a, a valuable email with a, a story anecdote. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, it's it's difficult. It's 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 difficult <clears throat> to per. It's difficult. To, well, I think what my you can tell me your thoughts, Victor. My conclusion is, I think you should go on your own data and try and improve every time you do something. I feel like that is the use the scientific method. Have a hypothesis, make a prediction, test something. Uh, and then go A or B and just keep doing that. If you do that for long enough, well, very literally, if you do that for long enough, you can achieve pretty much anything that's, that's physically possible as long as you can uh, live long enough to, to see the end of the, the process. So that's my conclusion. With yeah, this you, can, you can play with the numbers. Yeah, you can really play with the numbers. Uh, and again, really, the reason I really wanted to talk about this is that, you know, years ago, remember this, Will? Cold calling is mm -hmm. dead. Remember that? Yeah, it's not dead. And I think some people think email marketing is dead, and I don't think it is. And so I just I wanted to resuscitate <laughs> hope in email yeah. marketing. I'm, I'm the I worst example of this. 110,000 people on my email list. I've probably not emailed it in like a month, and I pay I think it's nearly a thousand dollars a month to like uh, to to have the email list and have access to, to to be able to email these individuals. I probably should be doing it more often. I think. Yeah, especially you should be emailing yeah. out this week in sales. That's what you should be emailing out. <laughs> I don't out. think I ever have done. Okay, uh, there we go. There's my promise to you, everyone who's... Uh, have... Dear uh, dear yeah. Adam. Dear Adam is the the guy behind the screen scene who actually does all the editing for this. Dear Adam, make sure this, I will this. This Saturday, this. this show will be emailed to the list. There we go. It'll probably it'll be, the, from my side anyway, on, on our podcast, it'll be the most downloaded show for months now because it'll be the only one I've, I've specifically okay. mentioned. Okay. 
I'll do. By the way, by the way, full disclosure. I haven't yeah. done it also, so I will also take that as part of my test to do it. As well. It's well. That okay. is a is a thing to touch on. Uh, we're, we're going to run out of time here in a second, so I'll keep it short. But this is the the, the plight of the uh, the modern salesperson, right? Because you should be cold calling. It's not dead. You should be emailing people. You should be creating content. You've got to be on LinkedIn. You you know, you've got to be texting people. And text is, is a hot topic at the moment as well. It's it's difficult, right, to to really know what you should be doing. What is the answer to that, Victor? Yeah. Is it just to master one element of communication uh, in, in the B two B space and and just get really good at that, as opposed to spreading yourself thin? I believe in picking two or three, like for me, YouTube, LinkedIn, and then the podcast itself are the three things I focus in on, and then I just kind of sprinkle stuff sure. on the other stuff. Because I just can't, I can't do it. I, I'm just not that talented. There's only so many things I can focus on, you know. So it's not that I'm. It's just like you, you know. And I, you know, we didn't even think about hitting this on our email <laughs> list, right? It's just like you, we have a duh moment yeah. right here live. Duh! Why didn't we do that? <laughs> okay, next up, and I've, I've been teasing this because I, I thought this was really excited, uh, really exciting, and uh, I'm sure you'll be interested in this as well. Chorister AI analyzing 35 million calls to work out how to better operate and what the finding i interviewed uh, ceo jim benton on the salesman podcast this week so that'll be up in the next few weeks or so probably after this episode airs and they found three things one c-suite participation in sales calls is up so it's 108 percent higher than it was in january but after the first meeting essentially the involvement of the c-suite drops down so c-suite again in on these sales deals, big and small, that was important that I got from the conversation with Jim, got these these deals, mm -hmm. big and small, and they are, you know, I assume, kiboshing some of them, progressing some of them forward, and they're getting more involved, whereas in the past, perhaps they would get involved at a later step in the process. Next up, and we can, we can come back to these if you want to discuss any of these points, Victor. Next up, it takes... Uh, Cold calling connect rates have fluctuated throughout the year with a 6% dip in average quarterly voicemail connect rates from Q2 to Q3. And mm -hmm. finally, sales demo breadth practices. A great demo doesn't just tell a story. The data shows that it should show the real day-to-day -day impact of a product. So if you're not showing the, if you're showing features and benefits, your sales demos are less effective than if you can communicate what it's like to use the product day-to-day. And reps should be prepared for these sales demos discussions to happen quickly because 78% of first calls now include some form of demo. And I'm assuming that is because we're doing a lot more video calls now. And so it's very easy just to switch the screen on and demo the product and reduce the, the even the sales cycle slightly rather than booking a meeting wow, in the future. Right? Wow. I'm blown away by that number, mm -hmm. by the way. Like literally, 78% of first calls will include some form of demo. That is high. And you, you might be absolutely right. It's because of this new virtual reality we're dealing with right now, remote selling. That's a big number. Did you expect it to be that high if you had to guess before you saw the report? No, not at all. It makes, it makes total sense, right, in that if you're on a call and it's going well, it makes sense to just go, hey, let me just show you this for two seconds. And then you've done a, a bit of a demo. You've increased interest. And again, if you can get the individual to picture their life, you're moving forward with your product, you're halfway there to, to getting the deal done. You're getting that emotional buy-in at the very beginning. But yeah, I think this has been facilitated by the move to video as opposed to you know buyers trying to compress the cycle themselves. Yeah, and I love that. That's a great number. That's that was my aha moment for this episode right there. I was like, whoa, okay. The Getting back to the C-levels have been uh, been joining sales calls at a rate of 100% higher than they were in January, but there is an 81% drop in C-suite meeting attendance from the first to the second. I don't think that – I don't. there was a book written by a gentleman. I think his name was Steve or Stephen Bistrit, Selling to the C-suite. And I remember this graphic in the book where he talked about where the actual executives enter the conversation – exit the conversation. So towards the beginning, first two phases, they're in there. During discovery conversations, they're in there. Uh, first presentation meeting, they're in there. Then they drop out and then they insert themselves somewhere towards the, you know, or you're, you're right, it's almost like right after the cook-off or the bake-off where you have the top three. So that's an interesting time. Interesting to note that. So it's selling to the C-suite. Great book, and, Another way. layer in here that Jim mentioned in the podcast interview was that 
the C-suite talk eighty percent. Uh, sorry, talk eight percent more than the average general buyer that would be involved in the sales process. So Jim, give I, I can't remember the top med. I'll leave some uh, kind of hints in the show notes, and it's it's in this study as well. Um, say say that again. I don't think okay, I understood so, that. Within a conversation, so Corridor AI is monitoring the amount of time being talked by each of the individuals uh, participating in the conversation. Uh, CXOs, or the C-suite executives, talk 8% more in the conversation as a percentage of the overall conversation than they than the usual buyer would be, whether it be middle management or end users. Interesting. That is interesting data. That's an interesting data point. So uh, Jim shared, I again, I can't remember the top of my head, but I'll put them in the show notes. Jim shared a few questions that we should be asking these uh, the CXOs and questions that uh, that make CEOs talk longer, which lead to then better outcomes as well, which is incredible, right? That we can get all of this just from recording yeah. calls. Yeah, I, that's another good data point, right? The more you get the CXO to talk, in this case, 8% more, the more likely they are to be involved, maybe even improve your close rates. Yeah. Love it. All right, can I talk about data storytelling? And so I came across this website called Narrative Sciences, and they said data, sto data storytelling is the fastest and easiest way to empower your team to both understand and act on data through the power of stories. Now, data, data storytelling software takes your data, analyzes it, and then turns it into plain English, more likely American English, because you British are just too hard to understand. The, I mean, we, we did invent the language. We, you know, it is called English, <laughs> right? I just thought I'd give you some riff on that. So I, what, what's interesting about this, uh, this website, narrativescience.com, is that there's a place for this. There's a place for this. Again, it turns it into place English. So, and then these stories are sent to you in a news feed style experience that ensures that you get the information you need to run your business you know at the time and if you go to the website it actually shows you some convoluted data right with some shipping numbers and all kinds of stuff and then as soon as you put in the range of let's say three months it then recalculates the graph for you re, you know redraws it out and then it starts putting all these bullet points and it starts interpreting the data for you and i'm just like this is brilliant is i Anyway, maybe I just, again, the nerd side of me got excited. I'm like, it's taking data. I'm looking at a graph. I don't know what it means. It then interprets it for me in a bullet style format that I can then use in a presentation, by the way. If I'm a salesperson, I could then take that data and use it in a presentation and maybe be more effective. This reminds me of the last Olympics, uh, be four years ago. The <laughs> By the way, I don't know about that segue, but go ahead. <laughs> You'll love this. I'm, I'm, you, you probably were aware of it at the time. The last Olympics... The because uh, there's such a, a push for the first piece of content with the results or you know the, the shenanigans or something going on within the the world of the Olympics. Whoever gets the article up first, you know New York Times, The Guardian, whoever it is, automatically gets a boost in traffic because when people are searching for it, that's the only piece of content there, and so they get more links, they get more likes, and that raises it up uh, through the YouTube algorithm. So there's there's real value in being first to create a content on a real-time uh, event such as the Olympics because the Olympics was the, the example um, that really kicked all this off because obviously it's so timely, it's so massive and it's, it's worth the investment um, to, to, to build these tools. There was a number of tools that were created to do what we're describing here. They would take feeds of the data from the, I guess, the Olympics organization will send data to TV channels so that they can, you know, the times and they can create the real-time feeds that overlay on top of the the uh, camera monitors and what you see at home. And there was AI that was basically created to create articles on this person won, here's a screenshot, and here was the time. And so this is, it's, this is a more sophisticated version of what they were doing mm -hmm. then. And what they did was they managed to then take it from this, over the period of the Olympics, this software was being developed. And at the beginning, it was just that, a, a headline, a time, a, a screenshot or picture from a live video feed, all thrown up. And, you know, it was super accurate. It was really impressive to, by the time the Olympics ends, what was that, like two or three weeks or so, that then it was the AI was adding extra context. It was going back to all the articles about individuals, if they'd been preparing um, if they'd done multiple events, for example, it'd be re-referencing all of this. And some, I can't, I, I, I'll butcher the numbers now, but it was like the New York Times. They had like a million new pages of content created, which is you know, valuable in its own right. Now, it's not so valuable yeah. when everyone is doing this and then there's just so much spam out there that you still have to fight to get to the top. But if you have this technology before someone else, again, when we're talking about the customer journey, if you can pull data 
that other people don't have and create a massive content before anyone else in the marketplace can. People are <laughs> going to come and, and consume your content before anyone else's. Oh, I love it. I love it. And this company, to your point, partnered with, I think, Quill. Quill, I think, is an AI application software algorithm that can take that data and create a whole article. And I highlight that in my book, the Sales Ex Machina book, how I show two different articles. One was AI written and the other one wasn't. And people can't tell the difference. Yeah. Well, we're way beyond the, the touring test, aren't we, of being able to, AI being able yeah. to create content or have a conversation that is uh, unrecognizable as AI. It seems human-like. That's correct. That is correct. Good man. Well, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to carry on going because I feel like I could ask you another 10 questions on these on that topic specifically because <laughs> both our jobs might no longer exist as soon as this AI gets good enough and there's enough data fed into it. This show doesn't need to exist. We've just we've just wiped out the whole show. It could easily pull the, the news, the context. <laughs> the only thing that it'd be lacking is the, the mistakes that we both make and the, the human element yeah. of it all, right? Oh, and that's what I wanted to mention just before we do move on. When I spoke to Jim at Chorus, I just wanted to nerd out of him on the data, the numbers. And Jim kept coming back to this fact that th there's real value in a human with empathy delivering this information and being able to c communicate. So on a previous episode, Victor, you and I talked about perhaps there would be a, you'd be doing a, a, a phone call or a, a live conversation via video and there'd perhaps be some kind of indication that you're, you're talking too fast, which would be my issue, or you talk too slow or you don't sound confident. And it's only early days of all of this, of course, but Jim said that they'd tried some of this and they found the best, most effective sales calls were when the individual was the least distracted to the point where they've toned down even some of the colors in their UI so that the salesperson can really focus in and, and be present with the individual. And that's the kind of thing that's very difficult to replicate and it's very difficult to measure as well. Yeah, I'm, so, I'm sorry. I, well, well, this will be another podcast, but I, I, but I want to get back to what Google did with their duplex software, the one that actually makes yeah. reservations. Let's have that. We, let's go into it then. Let's go. Let's, let's keep going. Got let's it. keep okay. going. So next up, CRM PipeDrive takes majority investment from Visa equity partners to reach unicorn status. So this came from uh, TechCrunch.com, which is a super nerdy <laughs> Silicon Valley um, tech blog. I enjoy reading it. But yeah, unicorn is uh, slang for... I love what they... Go on, I, sorry. I love what they... I love when they use unicorn. Any any company that uses unicorn earns yep. my respect. I'm looking for a unicorn yep, status. Of course, it, you know it, it's it's slang for absolutely crushed it beyond all expectations. So pipe drive. Some of the audience will be familiar with it. CRM for small and medium sized organizations. It's the latest European company to reach unicorn status. Uh, they've took on investment from Visa Equity. Basically, they've acquired PipeDrive via enough equity going into the business. Multiple sources tell TechCrunch it's valued PipeDrive at $1.5 billion. And I just wanted to give Timo Rain, who's been on my podcast before, I think you've spoke to him as well. Is that correct, Victor? Mm -hmm. To Timo Rain. PipeDrive. Uh, so no. Timo, one, one of the co-founders of PipeDrive, I just wanted to give him a... Uh, hmm. No, I've not talked... I just wanted to give him a uh, congrats and hopefully he's absolutely made bank and the, the original team are kind of off buying yachts and, and going crazy with the, the newfound uh, investment capital cash that they've managed to pull out of the business. So congrats, everyone at Pipedrive. What, what, congratulations, Pipedrive. $1.5 billion. Oh, I like that number. I <laughs> that's like that's that number. serious like money, that. isn't it? That's that's not playing around. Yeah. That is, obviously, it's split and you know it, it, it gets narrowed down, but hopefully we're talking serious money for those guys. Yeah, it'll pay a few light bills. It'll pay a few light bills. All right, next, how about this one? How millennials are changing B2B buying habits. Now, this we already know. I just thought it deserved an emphasis. Millennials, people born between 1981 and 1997, account for more than a quarter of the global workforce. I think it's actually higher here in the U.S. Since nearly 75% of millennial buyers say they get information from vendors' website, it's important to make sure that your website content, there it is again, mm -hmm. Will, is both current and comprehensive. With more than 70% of B2B searches starting with a generic term, the first touchpoint millennial buyers have with most business is Google or another search engine. Let's just say Google. Uh, the best way to rank well for generic terms on Google is to provide comprehensive content. Here we go again, and a specific topic that equals content marketing. This really kind of ties back to our original conversation, how content marketing is becoming, I think, Will, am I going too far here with a prediction that it's becoming more important than the actual sales profession itself? For a large organization, I'd say yes. For a small company, 
I'd, I, I guess it, it depends, right? I'm going all in. <laughs> I'm saying for both small and large. By the way, if you agree with me, let me know. If you disagree, let me know. If you agree with Will, let him know, so forth and so on. By the way, thisweekinsales.com, leave us some feedback. You're killing it with these plugs. I totally forgot that I built that page last week. <laughs> you, you did. I'm just helping. <laughs> I honestly, so, I was, so, if, so we actually talk, we yeah. talked about this. And yeah, you went out, you built the page. You even sent me the link. Hey, look, Victor, I built a page so people can leave their, their press releases, feedback, comments. And I'm over here, yeah, the guy pushing honestly, this thing. So. Absolutely forgot about it until you first mentioned it then. So I appreciate that, Victor. At least one of us is uh, is on the ball here. So I give some context to this. I was born in 1986. I am a millennial. And for, yeah, I Google everything. I don't want to. So my dad might ring up a, my dad's, uh, he's never going to listen to this. So I'll just say he's building a rocking horse at the moment. He likes his carpentry. Okay. And if he wants anything doing, he rings up and asks the, you know, the organization that he's buying you know, the plans and stuff from. Whereas I would, I would Google it if there was no website that dedicates to it. I'd then perhaps go on YouTube. I'd be looking for a video, and then at the, at a Porsche, I might email someone uh, who's you know, some kind of you know, a quote unquote influencer in the space to try and get a bit of feedback on things as well. But I'd do all of that before I'd pick up the phone, and I think that's pretty indicative of of most millennials. And you know, millennials, as as that uh, you, you alluded to there, Victor, in, in the post over to elevationb2b.com mm -hmm. alludes to as well. Millennials are now obviously aging up into more serious buying roles. So this is going to only become right. more and more important over time. Your turn. Next, Daniel Disney. Good guy. Been featured in Portsmouth News. I just wanted to give him a shout out. He, I, Hambleton, Hambledon. I've never even heard of it. Daniel, when you listen to this, I apologize, mate. I've never heard of your hometown, mate. He sells more than 4,000 <laughs> copies of his book, uh, which shares how to uh, win on LinkedIn. And so I just wanted to give Daniel a very quick shout out and congratulations on the coverage, mate. I, I interviewed uh, Daniel Disney on the Sales Influence podcast. I didn't know who he was. Here's the true, true, true to fact. He was on LinkedIn. He posted a couple of things I just thought were interesting. I said, ah, oh, this guy might be a good guy to interview. I didn't realize that who he was. I didn't realize that he was the guy that invented the sales daily. You know, I, I didn't know that. And so... Uh, what a beautiful interview. That was one of the best interviews I've had so far because he was so animated. Yeah. So, yeah, I, big high five to Daniel Disney, man. We're getting we, It's a big plug from this week in sales, Daniel. Take <laughs> that, that. That's at Take least that. two more books that we've just sold for you, Daniel. At <laughs> least two more books, man. At least two more books. Hey, have we talked about this, Will? The financial upside of being an optimist. We have not talked about it, but I want you to run through these points, and I've got our own data on this as well, which I'm going to share with you. All right. All right. The article is by Michelle Guilin, I think it is. Uh, after controlling for wealth, income, skills, and other demographics to the level to the level of the playing field, the data clearly showed that optimists like Will were significantly more likely to experience better financial health than pessimists and engage in healthier habits with their money. For instance, we found that 90% of optimists have put money aside for a major purchase compared to 70% of pessimists. Nearly two-thirds of optimists have started an emergency fund, while less than half of pessimists have. Additionally, optimists are more likely to seek out and follow advice from someone they trust. Hmm. All right. And in my opinion, by the way, not my opinion, Michelle's opinion, the most compelling finding was how optimists felt reporting that they stressed about finances 145 days each year less, fewer days each year as compared to pessimists. Let me say that again because it's important. The most compelling finding was how optimists felt reporting that they stressed about finances 145 days, fewer days each year as compared to pessimists. So almost half the year, if I could just exaggerate that number a little bit, that they worry less about money. Love that. What say you, Will Barron? I say I've actually interviewed Michelle on the Salesman Podcast before, and so I did some not of, know that. Just, just coincidence. Some of this data we talked about back then, so some of this is, is well known. Some of it may be new, um, but yeah, I am a massive and there's data on it which I'll talk about in a second. But I, I choose to be an optimist. My dad, my dad is a self-confessed pessimist. My mum was a massive optimist, so I probably took it from her side. But what about yourself, Victor? Would you? I, I'm assuming you would consider yourself an optimist. Do you see the, the glasses half full? Optimist. Optimist. Uh, you know, but the thing is, it's funny because I'm an optimist, but it's I worry about finances all the time. 
You know what I mean? It doesn't matter. It's just it's just part of my DNA. So that's the only part I, I don't know if I agreed with because I consider myself like 90%, 95% optimist on that, on that scale, that spectrum. But I always think about money. But maybe I think I don't – maybe here's the, here's, the, here's the critical word. I don't stress about finances. I just think about finances more. That's, I guess that's – that's, I would slice it that way. Well, th- that's, a, that's a fair way to slice it, I think. So there's multiple levels of optimism, right? There's been a optimist, optimistic realist, which perhaps is what you're describing here, of you think about your finances, but you're optimistic that if there's an issue, if there's something crops up, like a worldwide pandemic, that you can pivot and you can adapt and you know you're going to be fine at the end of the day. Um, there's blind optimism, Correct. which is unhealthy, where you just plod along, you've got your head in the sand, and you just assume everything is going to be all right, and then you don't have the ability to pivot. And there's two other, I can't remember the top of my head now, but there's a couple of other types of optimism as well. And this is something that we test in our sales code assessment. We've had a couple of thousand people go through it now. And there's, from our own data, there's now very clear ties between, there's 12 traits, but one of them is optimism, very clear ties between optimism and people having success in sales. And I think about it like this, Victor, tell me your thoughts on this. If you're pessimistic and you've got to pick up the phone and you're assuming that no one's going to pick it up or you're going to get some idiot on the other end, you're going to be so reluctant to pick up the phone that you're going to make less dials than someone who's optimistic and excited to speak with someone. And that translates to the phone call itself, right? If you get on there and you're like, oh, this person is just going to waste my time, it's going to be a pain in the ass, that is going to translate through body language, tonality, and all these other things um, into a, a just a, probably not a very good conversation. So optimism le- lends you to make more phone calls. I'm using phone calls uh, in this example. It could be emails or whatever mm. it is, uh, knockings on doors. It then leads you to better conversations, which then leads to better results, which then leads you to have evidence and proof that what you're doing is, is right and it works. So that's how I like to think about it. And a lot of the data on optimism shows that as well. For example, optimists are found to be um, consider themselves more lucky. And there's a really good study where they would put five pound notes on the floor, whatever it's $20, $20 note, and they would watch people either walk by, see it and ignore it or walk by, see it, and pick it up and put it in the pocket. They would interview them after the fact. The people who are pessimistic would look at it and go, ah, oh, you know, it's probably someone else's. I'm going to pick it up and they're going to kick off at me. Or, you know, someone's probably just dropped it. <laughs> the optimist would go, oh, great, 20 quid. I'll have that. I'll stick it in my pocket. So again, it's it's oh, it's really funny. well researched. And I feel like this, this feedback loop, this flywheel that you've <clears> got to build in sales of a little bit of success leads to more success, leads to more success is why our data shows that optimists uh, are more effective mm. in, in the sales process. I'm going to accuse you, by the way, great story. I'm going to accuse you of loading the question okay. because I don't believe pessimists exist in selling. I believe you have a spectrum of optimism but there are no pessimists because pessimists basically Darwinian themselves out of the sales. So you're absolutely right. They're not going to last in sales. So that's why I say I don't think they exist. If they do, it's temporary. They're right back out. But we do have, I would love to hear about your, was it four types of optimists? Because I think it is kind of a spectrum of optimism that we're really talking about. So I think, I think that's an interesting yeah, point. And, that's a good and, way to look at it. It's, it's both a spectrum, right? Clearly everything, <laughs> anything to do with psychology and, and this kind of analysis um, you know, even if it's done by a clinician as opposed to uh, some chump in, a, in an office in, in Roundhay. But we did have a, a, a local um, PhD come in and, and kind of validate some of our data. The numbers there is enough to validate some of this now. But it's another thing that should be emailed out and reported on, which I've never, just never got around to because that, that's interesting. Maybe I'll feature myself at some point or you can feature me at some point with some of this data, right? So. With that said, the, I said this, I can't remember the other two, but the, the two main types of optimists that are both positive and negative is this uh, optimism, uh, realistic optimist, and then the uh, the other one that I'm, I'm blanking on now, Victor. The skeptical, the skeptical optimist, can we call yeah. them that, or the no, the blind, blind optimism blind is what optimism. you said, blind up, blind optimism. I think so. Yeah. Hey, Will, I got a freebie. I got a freebie today, and so. AlphaGo, the movie, the full documentary is now available on YouTube. And I'm going to encourage everybody to watch this one because it's it's really about, uh, it's obviously an AI documentary, but you get to go behind the scenes of a company called DeepMind and how they've really improved AI. And they use the game of Go because it's much more complicated than chess. And the machine begins to beat 
you know, the best Go players in the world. So it's a great documentary. If you just kind of want to touch AI a little bit, uh, you know, and kind of see what it is, I think this is a great movie. And it's free. It's on YouTube. Link is provided in the show notes. Do you play Go, Victor? I do not. I just watch a lot of movies where they play Go. (laughs) I I, I was expecting (laughs) you to say yes there. I thought you'd have a a more specific interest. I was going to suggest we could battle it out. We could play a, a live series of go games go game? i've never played before either so we could probably still do it I, i've never played well the thing is i you know you and i are probably familiar maybe a fan of as well of sun tzu the mm-hmm. art of war and it you know sun tzu and many of people who were considered great strategists were masters of the game of go because it is very a strategic game so uh that's that's as far as i go with you know go hey that was pretty good actually as far as I go, uh, go, another element of this as well, and it might maybe I've not seen the documentary. Tell me if it was talked about. But DeepMind also have been involved in the world of StarCraft. Does it talk about that in the in the documentary? No, so, it does not. It does not. I didn't even know that so Star- existed. StarCraft, uh, this super nerdy real-time strategy game, it's massive in, in Asia more so than in, in Europe and in the US, although it's still got a, a big following over here. But in, for example, in, in South Korea, they'll fill a stadium with people playing it. It's, it's almost like a national sport. It's insanely popular over there. Wow. Well, you can imagine... Uh, Playing a retail strategy game, if anyone isn't familiar with that term, you're looking down and there's different units of aliens and, and humans and, and, and other things going on and you're attacking each other. Well, there's multiple layers of complexity with that because you're, again, like Go, you're reacting to a, a live uh, combatant. So it's not like, uh, so it's very difficult to train, basically. But I'm, sure, I'm pretty sure it's the DeepMind guys. Uh, they now are capable of beating um, human players at the highest level. So there's this thing going around now where people are really scared of, uh, you know, esports is something that's clearly going to blow up over the next decade or so. It's probably going to be, you know, as big if not bigger than some of the you know more traditional sports, you know, football, rugby, um, NBA, basketball, American football. It, it's clearly it's going to be as big if not bigger than some of these, just because it's so accessible to people who aren't, you know, both genetically born gifted and perhaps. You know, if you've, if you've got no mates, you can still go online and play. So it's going to blow up. And there's this issue now with potential, um, what do they call it? I think it's AI doping, they call, where the people are building apps where it's leaning on some of these AIs and you know, building their own AI. And Wait a minute. We got, we got, we got yeah. to pause for that phrase. Did you just say AI AI doping? doping getting stru- getting AI- real-time strategy advice or letting AI take parts of the, the game. Because there's lots of clicking. So you have to like, have really good dexterity By the for way, it. Allowing AI to do some only, for you. I just want to say, only on this week in sales will you hear such a wide range of topics, now including Minecraft and AI. Starcraft. Don't, don't, Minecraft is for children. Starcraft. Don't compare the two. You're going to have thousands of, of people calling in and, and, and harassing you, Victor. <laughs> that's, that's really interesting. So they're using... AI to a system in the game, and that's AI yeah. dope. So it's been involved in this computer game called Counter-Strike. I used to play this when I was a kid. So there's things called aim bots where you would move your reticle close to a someone that you're trying to shoot at, and it would snap onto it, lock onto it, and it would fire the gun for you. But that is very easy for software to, to pick up, and they just ban you from the service if they catch you doing it. But all of this okay. AI-generated uh, stuff, rather than just... You know, it could be a software that's looking at pixels and moving one place to the other. When you're using AI neural engines and neural networks to do a lot of these calculations, you can make it a lot more human. And so, again, people are getting away with it. And and, and the speed of the computation that it must be required is amazing. All right, we've gone down the nerd route. Let's get out of that nerd. Let's go. Let's go. Let's, let's wrap up. Victor, let's what hole. is your key takeaway from the week, mate? Well, as you know, we had an election about a week ago. Did you? Is th- and did, did as that you know, yes, we did. <laughs> it happened. It's, and as you know, apparently there's a lot of questioning going on about how the votes were counted, and we're still in the midst of that. And I'm like, with all this technology, with all this infrastructure we have, why can't we do better? That's my question. And by the way, it's not a political statement left or right. It's just, come on. we got to figure this out. It's embarrassing. Yep. I'm going to pile on top of that, Victor. I'm going to leverage your point, mate, and say I'm from the UK, right? I've I've watched more about the the presidential debates, the the race, everything that was going on, all the shenanigans. I've been more interested in that than anything Boris has ever said here in the UK. 
but it's not a good use of my time. So that's my point. No, no, focus no, it's, on. It's so much yeah. drama. It's drama now. Now, now we're into you know, uh, you know, my family's uh, Spanish from Puerto Rico, so we like novelas, like you know, uh, you know, soap operas. That's novelas, telenovelas. This to me is like a yep. novela. You know, it's like what happens today? Who gets shot? Who doesn't get shot? Who finds what? Who discovered what? Who's cheating on who? Today, tune in for the world. You yeah, know, yeah. it's a soap opera, man. It's a soap opera. So, well, that's my takeaway. It's not embarrassing. It's, it's just the way things have, have headed, right? It's just it was inevitable. Politics would turn turn this route yep. with celebrity culture that we have. Um, but with that, my takeaway is: if it doesn't affect you, don't waste your time and energy on it. Focus on things that you know. Me being in the I UK, agree. right? Focus on things that are going to change your life, as opposed to you know things elsewhere in the world. Yeah, it's that, it's, I always keep thinking about Stephen Covey's circle of influence. There's things you can't control, and there's things you can't control. Focus on those things you can. That's the note for the week. Love it. Well, with that, that was Victor Antonio. I'm Will Barron, and that has been This Week in Sales, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>